0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television. If you go to Fordham University's website, okay, so I cheated a bit, and make your way to Professor Elizabeth Johnson, Beth's personal webpage, and I highly recommend that you do you'll learn that she began her study of theology as an undergraduate in 1959 just prior to the announcement that a second Vatican Council of the Catholic Church would take place. You'll learn of the influences that have shaped her theology, whether Aquinas early on, or Latin American liberation theology and its South African variation, or feminist theology with all its diverse and insistent voices, or most recently, comparative theology, or postmodern thought. You'll also learn how literally life-changing her encounter was with one particular document from Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. And you'll learn how she regards current church efforts to reverse the course charted by Vatican II, and why she finds being a theologian, especially a woman doing this ministry in the church today such quote a humbling exciting tough and wondrous thing you'll see how she came how and why she came to write her groundbreaking and widely acclaimed book on the need for and benefits of more female images of god she who is and whether it's the issue of god and evolution or the communion of saints or human suffering or the liberating meaning of Jesus Christ, or ecology as an issue for faith, you'll read why she persists in raising the gender question. Plus, you'll see the countless awards she has garnered for the eight books and myriad of scholarly articles she has written, as well as for her teaching excellence. What you will not find on her webpage however, is what almost anyone in her classroom at Catholic University in the spring of 1981, when yours truly was her Christology student, well before any of the accolades, could have told you instantly that you were in the presence of a great mind, a dedicated scholar, and a superb teacher. In short, someone whose passion for the gospel and for faith-seeking understanding couldn't help but call forth the best in you. Sure, hindsight is 2020, you'll say, but everyone I know who studied or worked with her in those years, including lots of Paulists, came away in awe and gratitude for her clarity, her insight, her genuine care for students and for their entry into doing theology, and her feisty good humor. I remember one classroom encounter in particular, We each had three-to-five-page reflection papers to write at various points throughout the semester. After we had turned them in for the period of the early church controversies, was Jesus divine, human, how so, and what constituted a heresy in that period, one enthusiastic student mentioned what his thinking had been and how he had framed his arguments. Sensing he might be on thin theological ice, he pressed on. Sister Do you think that's heresy? I don't see how, but you might. What do you think? Very tenderly, but very firmly, Beth replied, Well, you know, there can be well-reasoned heresy and poorly-reasoned heresy. We'll just have to see which yours is. All kidding aside, it was bracing to be in her classroom or hear her at a ministerial workshop. And it's still thrilling to pick up an article or book by her and to be provoked into a deeper love of God and for a church that is always in need of reform. No stranger herself to how resistant the church can often be to such growth, she has seen firsthand the sufferings of those living under apartheid, heard the voices of women around the globe struggling for their God-given dignity, and weathered an inquisition-like examination of her own orthodoxy because of her theological vision and her loyalty to fellow theologians like Charlie Curran and Roger Haight. Yet rancor is not part of her repertoire. Full-hearted and full-throated empowerment and friendship is. And now everyone knows what we privileged ones glimpsed nearly 30 years ago, for they write scholarly books assessing her theology and her telling influence on the entire field. In the introduction to her latest book, Quest for the Living God, she writes... When medieval mapmakers came to the limit of their knowledge of the known world, they oftentimes wrote in the empty space, here be dragons. There is something frightening about moving into the unknown, which might harm or devour us. Readers are invited to test where the limits of their own ideas about God might be, and to risk a journey through dragon territory to new places already discovered to be life-giving and true by others in the church. The result can be a richness of faith that cleaves to the living God even in the darkness and shows itself in passionate, responsible care for this good but terribly fractured world. Neither heretic nor dragon, Elizabeth Johnson has been testing the limits of our known theological worlds for over 30 years. Beth, that's the very reason Chris Witt and I started your love affair with this UCSD community, by inviting you to come here 20 years ago and persuading Burke to go along for the ride. (laughs) Welcome back, dear friend and gentle guide. Thrill us once again.
1: Good evening, everyone. And I start by thanking Peter Abdella for that introduction. Anyone here who's a teacher, you should be so lucky as to have a student 20 years, 30, no, 30. 30 years later, get up and have these kind of memories. Um, I want to start by saying thank you to the Burke Committee for inviting me here for a second Burke Lecture, and especially on this occasion of the 25th anniversary of the Eugene Burke Lectures. This is a celebration in all kinds of ways. And the subject that I would like to share with you tonight and reflect with, uh, with regard to this is, again, new work that I am doing and that many of us now are doing that has to do with ecology, And the topic is An Ecological Inquiry, Jesus and the Cosmos. So I'd like to begin uh, with an introduction inviting you to consider two images. One is the by now familiar photo of our planet taken from space. A blue marble swirled around with white clouds against a vista of endless black. Rusty Schweigert, the American astronaut who walked on the moon, recalled that from the moon, you can block out the earth with your thumb the way you can block out the moon from earth with your thumb. And when he did that, he realized that everyone he loved and everything he loved was on that little dot that he could block out with his thumb. And he said he never had realized before then what a precious place earth was. So that is an experience many people of our generation have. The beauty of earth, the magnificence of it, the more science discovers about how the earth itself works. The second image appeared recently in the New York Times in an article by the Brazilian writer Edgar Teles Ribeiro. Early one fine summer morning, He set his umbrella and chair on the beach in Rio de Janeiro, intending to read before the crowds arrived. And now I quote from the article. But then I spotted a small shape emerging from the water. As it landed, I noticed it was flapping its wings feebly. Everything about the little fellow, its slowness, weakness, and vulnerability, told me it was not there by choice. I looked again. A penguin on Ipanema beach? Yes. And then he went on, the penguin fell to its side. It had swum 2,000 miles, its normal pursuit of anchovies possibly confused by shifting ocean currents and temperatures. It would not survive on the hot sand. Joggers arrived, the firemen were called and finally the animal was removed. And relieved, the author was nevertheless discomforted with the sense that something troubling had happened there. And he did a little research and found that in recent years, over 1,000 Magellanic penguins have washed up on Brazil's coasts, exhausted and starving. Most soon die. Scientists attribute their disorientation to disruptions caused by climate change. And the author reflected, and this is how he ended the article, quote, that frail, helpless, displaced being had made me suddenly understand our human impact on the planet, end quote. Just one little animal. Take a whole huge discussion and make it concrete. So those are the two images, right, that I'd like us to hold in our mind tonight as we have, on the one hand, the wonder we have about the world, and on the other hand, the way that we are quickly wasting it by our human actions. Today, ecological awareness is growing among people everywhere. Ecological from the Greek oikos, meaning household or home. Earth is our home in the universe, or as Rushdie Swigert said, only one Earth, and we are dazzled by its beauty. At the same time, we are wrecking its life-supporting systems of soil, water, and air, and ruining the life patterns of other species. Now what has this got to do with religious people committed to walking by the light of their faith? All the world's great religious traditions have something to contribute here. All place a value on the natural world, all teach virtues of self-restraint and compassion, and this is all applicable. But here we will focus on the Christian faith. To date, most Christian theology on this subject has rightly centered on the doctrine of creation. Writings by recent popes, uh, statements by the World Council of Churches, Pastoral letters by the United States Catholic bishops, bishops of the Philippines, northern Italy, Australia, and so on, and a number of theologians are all underscoring the belief that since God created the world freely out of love and saw that it was good, to quote Genesis, then it has an intrinsic value in its own right and is worthy of our respect and care. And this is an approach that Christians share with Jews and with Muslims, the monotheistic faiths. But Christian faith, of course, encompasses more than belief in one God who is the creator or the maker of heaven and earth. As the structure of the Christian creed reveals, faith pivots around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, cherished as Emmanuel, God with us. It also affirms the Holy Spirit in the Nicene Creed, whom we confirm as the Lord and giver of life. So in this lecture, I'd like to trace with you the thoughts that came into my mind as I asked myself the question, does Jesus have anything to do with this? Not just God the creator or the indwelling spirit, but Jesus Christ. And so I would like to explore with you the doctrine of Christ and its potential for an ecological spirituality and an earth ethic. I'd like to do it in three points and end with some practical applications. And the three points are just quickly looking at the ministry of Jesus, then at what you might say Christmas, the incarnation, and then Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And see if you think yourself this, these threads make sense. So first of all, the ministry of Jesus. We begin with the gospel portraits of Jesus' brief ministry as an adult. One of the powerful results of modern biblical scholarship is the rediscovery of the ministry of Jesus for Christian faith and discipleship. Today, we tend to see him as a spirit-filled Jewish prophet, a teacher and healer in first-century Galilee, crucified, for historically political reasons, and proclaimed to be risen from the dead in the categories of Jewish expectation of the end time. Now, by giving us a glimpse of his ministry, it shows us that he was one kind of person and not another, that he taught specific parables about the compassion of God and not something else, that he acted toward people in trouble in certain ways and not other ways. And he called people to a certain kind of response and not other responses, right? This biblical scholarship of his, of his historical nature, getting a glimpse of the historical Jesus, is providing new imaginative fodder for the Christian imagination of its life and practice in every dimension. As a result of this work, Scholars have been able to focus in on a key organizing idea of Jesus' ministry, and that key idea is the kingdom of God or the reign of God. This is a rich Jewish symbol that points to the moment when God will rule. As we say in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the same thing, right? And what is that will? Nothing less than the reconciling and the flourishing of all creatures, which in doctrinal terms we call salvation. Now, for someone subsequently interpreted as a spiritual savior, it is remarkable, some people find it even embarrassing, how Jesus' view of this kingdom of God included earthy well-being, Not only is sin forgiven, and it is, but physical health is restored to people. Recall how his healing practices place people's bodily suffering at the center of concern. Notice how he used his warm touch to bring about healing, sometimes even his own spittle to convey health. And recall how he fed people large numbers on the hillsides, or smaller groups in homes where he was the copious host. They knew his concern for their bodily hunger. His preaching showed a similar earthy orientation. Set within an agrarian culture, his parables are salted with references to seeds and harvests, rain and sunsets, lost sheep and nesting birds. In his view, God cared even for the wildflowers. In fact, was even concerned about a dead sparrow fallen to the ground. Dare we think of a washed-up penguin here? As the ministry of Jesus reveals, the love of the God of heaven and earth, his Abba, embraces the whole of creation. Now from the Gospel's depiction of Jesus' words and deeds and relationships centered on the kingdom of God, scholars today draw out an idea that they call the Christic paradigm, okay? This is a summary motif that illuminates the Gospels in all their complexity. And the major Christic paradigm operating in theology today states that as far as the living God is concerned, liberating, healing, and inclusive love is the meaning of it all. This is what Jesus embodied. This is what he stands for. Liberating, healing, and inclusive love is the meaning of it all. Clearly, this applies to everyone who suffers from frustrations and finitude and mortality in our earthly life. In a special way, the church realizes today, it applies to marginalized human beings suffering from entrenched poverty and violence for whom God intends liberation and healing in a specially inclusive way. But we're beginning to realize now that we cannot stop there. Take this Christic paradigm and write it across the whole earth Then we can see that the plenitude of life for all Earth's creatures, not just one species, Homo sapiens, but for all living creatures, is God's original intent. The Christic paradigm makes clear that Earth and all of its creatures are also encompassed by God's design that liberating, healing, and inclusive love be the meaning of it all. One theologian has said, in this perspective, Jesus giving us the great commandment to love God with all our heart and soul and our neighbor as ourself takes on a new resonance. He says, let's imagine that that lawyer who asked Jesus, but who is my neighbor, were around to ask it again today. Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan in answer to that question. And we would say today, but who is my neighbor? The Samaritan, yes. The outcast, yes. My enemy, yes. But it is also the whale, the bird, the rainforest. Our neighbor is the entire community of life, and we must love it all as our very self. So love as Jesus enfleshed it is the meaning encoded at the heart of the universe itself, And his ministry underscores the dignity of what is physical. Because to put this another way, bodies matter to God. All bodies, not just those beautiful and full of life, but those damaged, violated, starving, dying bodies of humankind and other kind alike. Hence, Jesus' ministry grounds compassion for all the bodies in creation, Not only those who succeed in their time, but those that are broken. And not only those of human beings, but those of all creatures, including those being pushed into extinction. And with this conviction, those who follow Jesus, Christian disciples, can risk the struggle for the life of all bodies on this planet, where socially, Death due to the ravages of poverty is a daily possibility for millions of people. And ecologically, death due to rapacious greed and insensitivity affects millions of other creatures. And in so doing, disciples are following Christ by working out in history what it takes to bring on the kingdom of God, to enflesh it in our own time and place. And along this line of thinking, I suspect the implications of this Christic paradigm promote ecological integrity and also bring it into a tight embrace with social justice so that it is not an either or. But human beings flourishing on a flourishing earth is what the reign of God is all about. But that is not all that we have to say. So we move to our second point. Central to Christian faith is the experience that in dealing with our brother Jesus of Nazareth, we are dealing at the same time with a person who embodies the God who is love in the flesh. Before the end of the first century, this belief found its most influential expression in the prologue of the Gospel of John. Adapting an older Jewish hymn to holy wisdom the evangelist wrote famous words, quote, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. The original Greek of the gospel does not say that the word became human, and in that case the word would be anthropos, the Greek word for humanity, but the word became flesh, the Greek word being sarx, which is a broader reality. Here the flesh is not identified with sinfulness and contrasted with a spiritual mode of being as in the older flesh-spirit theology of Paul. Rather, in John's Gospel, Sark signifies what is material, perishable, simply and poignantly transient, in a word, mortal and finite, the very opposite Of what is divine. Now, all the emphasis in this prologue is on the entry of the eternal Word of God into the vulnerable realm of earthly existence. Now, in its own historical time, this hymn had an unmistakable anti Gnostic tone, by which I mean it protests against the idea that in Christ God just made an appearance while remaining untouched by the so-called contamination of matter. that was the Gnostic heresy. (laughs) It rejects the idea that Jesus' humanity, this is John's Gospel now, rejects the idea that Jesus' humanity was just a disguise, a masquerade, a suit of clothes put on to do a certain job that could be taken off and discarded at the end. Rather, taking the ancient Jewish theme of God's dwelling among the people of Israel a step further, it affirms that in a new and saving event, the word became flesh, became joined forever to the sphere of the material and the mortal in order to shed light on all from within it. Now in truth, the type of sarks that the word became was precisely human which may explain the strong emphasis on salvation for human beings in most theology and preaching throughout the ages. In our day, however, the human race itself is being repositioned as an intrinsic part of the evolutionary network of life on our planet, which in turn is part of the solar system, which came into being as a later chapter of cosmic history. Now, I digress here for a moment. Tracing this natural history opens a way into broader insight into the ecological meaning of the flesh, the sarks, that the word became. So here's the digression. The prevailing theory in science today is that everything in the known universe comes from a single indecipherable instant, dated at 3.7 billion years ago and rather inelegantly called the Big Bang. This universe began when a single numinous speck exploded in an outpouring of matter and energy that is still going on. This material expanded according to a precisely calibrated rate, unfurling neither too fast nor too slow. And it was lumpy. So its unevenness allowed swirling galaxies to form as gravity pulled particles together and their dense friction ignited the stars. That went on for billions of years ago until some of those stars got old and like all things in the universe, died. And in dying, these aging stars exploded in great supernova that cooked the simpler hydrogen atoms into heavier elements, such as carbon and iron, spewing this debris into the cosmos. And following the original pattern of explosion and attraction, some of this cloud of dust and gas reformed and reignited to become our star, the sun, a second-generation star. And some of it coalesced in chunks too small to catch fire, forming the planets of our solar system, including Earth. And then 3.8 billion years ago, another momentous change took place when the material of this planet so arranged itself that it burst into self-replicating creatures, the advent of life out of the Big Bang, the stars, out of the stardust, the earth, out of the molecules of earth, life. They were single cell creatures at first for millions of years and then out of their life and death came an advancing tide, fragile but unstoppable. Creatures that live in shells, fish, amphibians, insects, flowers, birds, reptiles, then mammals, among whom recently have emerged human beings, we primates whose brains are so richly textured that we experience self-reflective consciousness and freedom, or in classical terms, mind and will. Matter zesty with self-transcendence evolves to life, then to consciousness, and then to self-consciousness. Human thought and love, we realize, are not something injected into this universe from without, but are the flowering within us of deeply cosmic energies. So in the human species, nature becomes conscious of itself and open to grace and glory. Rabbi Abraham Heschel had a beautiful comment on this. He said, why, this makes human beings the cantors of the universe able to sing thanks and praise in the name of all the rest. In our inspirited bodilyness, in turn, human beings are an intrinsic element of the cosmos, taken from the dust of the earth, as Genesis said, and never to be isolated from it. Clearly, what is now no longer adequate for theology is a traditional dualistic philosophy that defines spirit and matter as separate and opposed elements, or a spiritual Platonism, even worse, that looks upon matter as dark and chaotic and anti-divine. Only a philosophy that envisions matter and spirit as one in their origin, their history, and their goal can support a credible view of human beings in light of evolutionary theory. As this story of the universe makes clear Everything is connected with everything else. Nothing imaginable is isolated. What makes our blood red? Iron. Where does it come from? The scientist and theologian Arthur Peacock has a great line. He said, every atom of iron in our blood would not be there had it not been produced in some galactic explosion billions of years ago and eventually condensed to form the iron in the crust of the earth from which we have emerged. Quite literally, human beings are made of star stuff. Furthermore, the story of life's evolution on our planet makes evident that we share with all other living creatures a common genetic ancestry. We all descend from those ancient original cells. Bacteria, pine trees, blueberries, Horses, the dolphins, we are all genetic kin in the great community of life. We humans, then, to end this digression, we evolved relationally, we exist symbiotically. Our existence in every moment depends on interaction with the rest of the natural world. Now, repositioning the human species with regard to our relationship to planetary and cosmic matter has far reaching implications for an ecological interpretation of the incarnation. From this perspective, the flesh that the word became is part of the vast body of the cosmos. The phrase deep incarnation, coined by the Danish scholar Niels Gergesen, is starting to be used in theology to signify this radical divine reach into the very tissue of biological existence. Born of a woman and the Hebrew gene pool, Jesus of Nazareth was a creature of earth, a complex unit of minerals and fluids, an item in the carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen cycles. One moment in the biological evolution of life on this planet like all human beings, he carried within himself the signature of the supernovas and the geology and life history of Earth. The atoms comprising his body once belonged to other creatures. And the genetic structure of his cells made him part of the whole community of life that descended from common ancestors in the ancient seas. So the sarks of John's prologue thus reaches beyond human beings to encompass the whole biological world of living creatures and the cosmic dust of which we are composed. Very pointedly, the German theologian Karl Rahner said it this way, the most radical statement that Christianity dares to make is that God became material. Deep Interpretation understands John's prologue to be saying just that. This incarnation, a concentrated expression of divine love already poured out in creation, has effects in two directions. First, it links the transcendent God forever with the flesh of the cosmos. And second, this relationship confers blessing on the whole of earthly reality in its corporal dimension, and on the cosmos in which the earth dynamically exists. Teilhard de Chardin once penned a beautiful hymn to matter, in which he said, harsh, perilous, mighty, impenetrable, and mortal, though this material stuff be, I acclaim you as the divine milieu, charged with creative power, as the ocean stirred by the spirit, and as the clay molded and infused by life by the incarnate word. Rather than being a barrier that distances us from the divine, the matter of this world and all of its creatures, incarnate in this one instance in Jesus Christ, mediate us toward the immediacy of God. And hence it is by carrying out our responsibilities in and to this world and not by fleeing it that we work out our redemption. This, I suggest, can root ecological ethics in the deepest core of Christian faith. But we're not finished yet. Because the end of Jesus' life in death and resurrection provides yet another area of insight. And so we move to the third point. No exception, perhaps, to the only ironclad rule in all of nature, Jesus died, his life bleeding out in a spasm of state violence. Theology has always seen in the cross the love of God writ large. In fact, we say that Christ died for us. Contemporary theology is replete with the idea that in Christ, God suffered not just once, on a certain Good Friday, but continues to suffer throughout history in solidarity with the ongoing agony of human beings because crosses keep on being set up throughout history, and people like Pilate keep saying, ecce homo, behold the human being with tear-stained, starving, and tormented faces. The crucified God suffers with human beings and will continue to do so until we take all the crucified peoples down from the cross. Now again, ecological awareness makes us realize that this solidarity of God with suffering is not limited to human beings alone. Nature, too, is suffering As Paul wrote in the letter to the Romans, the whole creation has been groaning in travail together until now, awaiting redemption. The Christic paradigm discloses that the holy mystery of love bears the cost of new life through endless millennia of suffering and dying and all that is involved in evolution. For Christian faith, the cross does not have the last word. It blossoms as the tree of life. Starting with a humiliated body laid in a tomb, the resurrection tells of the creative power of divine love triumphing over the crucifying power of evil and the burying power of death. Thanks to its original context in Jewish eschatological expectation, this Easter news has always involved bodilyness, as an essential element. Far from the Greek dualism that envisioned the human being composed of body and soul which could be separated, Hebrew anthropology knows only of the body person self, dust of the earth and breath of God in unbreakable unity. So the full-bodied reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the necessary correlate. It is not his soul alone that is saved from death, or raised, but his whole body person, self. In the incarnation, in other words, the divine word became flesh, and in the consummation of his life in death, he does not strip off this materiality, but retains it eternally. And so the resurrection of the body, as we confess in the creed, is a central Christian belief. Now, what this means in the concrete is not seriously imaginable. We still live within the framework of time-space of the known universe, and we can't figure this out. It certainly does not mean that Jesus was resuscitated to resume life in our present state of biological existence along the line of the Lazarus story. Such a naive physicalist view, present in stained-glass windows and many, many Easter cards, pervades popular thinking, but it does not bear up under critical scrutiny. And yet the resurrection does have much to do with bodiliness. The tomb is empty, and that empty tomb stands as an historical marker for the love of God, stronger than death, which embraces biological existence itself and rescues it from annihilation. How to talk about this? Theology tends to use the language of transformation, but as the Australian theologian Anthony Kelly observed, the problem with transformation is that we cannot imagine what it means before it happens. Okay. But to use Paul's images from 1 Corinthians, he said, as the seed that you plant is unrecognizable in the mature plant into which it sprouts, okay. or as a corruptible body planted in the earth, rises incorruptible, as what is perishable turns into something imperishable. As a creature of dust comes to bear the image of heaven, so too transformation beyond death entails unimaginable change. The angel, like a streak of lightning in the tomb, simply says to the women, he has been raised. Now for Jesus himself personally, This means the abiding, redeemed validity of his human historical existence drawn to life in God's presence forever. But that's not all. The joyful alleluias that break out at Easter come from the added realization that his destiny is not meant for himself alone, but for the whole human race. It signals that a blessed future awaits all who go through the shattering of death, which is everyone The poetry of an early Christian hymn in scripture captures this succinctly when it calls the risen Christ the firstborn of the dead, Colossians 1.15. The firstborn of the dead. So the firstborn means there's other sibs about to follow, right? And Paul gives us another terrific metaphor when he refers to Christ, quote, as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, I come from New York where we just had a horrendous winter And with flowers coming out now, the the change of season is extraordinary, unlike you lucky people here who always have growing season all year long. But if you live in a, a season of winter, you know how wonderful it is to plant when the spring comes. And if you have ever grown tomatoes in that kind of a climate, you know what a joy it is when they start to ripen and you finally pick the first one. But there are more on the vine, and their day of harvest will come. And so when Paul calls Christ the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he's really calling Christ the first tomato (laughs) of the summer. But there are more on the vine that will ripen, and that's all the rest of us, right? So death, then, does not mean annihilation. Neither does salvation mean the escape of the human spirit from a relational existence embedded in matter. Rather, the risen Christ awakens hope for transformation of our whole body person self, dust and breath together, into the glory of God. Now, putting this back into our ecological framework, we see we need to push beyond the human scope of resurrection to include a future for the whole natural world. Ambrose of Milan once preached In Christ's resurrection, the earth itself arose. And the reasoning runs like this. If in this human being, Jesus of Nazareth, we have the connection of what is divine with what is earthly, then if such a piece of this world, real to the core, is now forever with God in glory, this pledges redemption not just of other human beings but of matter, of the whole rest of creation. The whole natural world in all its endless permutations will not be left behind, but will likewise be transfigured by the resurrecting action of the Creator's Spirit. As the same hymn in Colossians also says, not only is Christ the firstborn of the dead, it goes on to say, He is the firstborn of all creation. In a beautiful synergy of visual and verbal poetry, the liturgy of the Easter Vigil celebrates this with cosmic symbols of light and dark, new fire, flowers and greens, water and oil, bread and wine. And in the Roman Catholic liturgy of the Easter Vigil, there is a hymn named the Exultet, which is sung once a year, once the new fire has been lit. And it begins... Exalt all creation around God's throne, for Jesus Christ is risen. And it continues. Rejoice, O earth, in shining splendor, radiant in the brightness of your king. Christ has conquered. Glory fills you. Darkness vanishes forever. It struck me this Easter when I was working on this. We are are announcing the resurrection to the earth at this vigil. The risen Christ prefigures the ultimate hope of all creation. Once, when the noted 19th century U.S. naturalist John Muir came across a dead bear in Yosemite, he wrote in his journal a biting criticism against religious folk who make no room in heaven for such noble creatures. Quote, not content with taking all of earth for themselves, They also claim the celestial country as though they are the only ones who possess the kinds of souls for which that imponderable empire was planned. And to the contrary, and I think these are my favorite John Muir words, he concluded in his journal that evening God's charity is broad enough for bears. Not many in Muir's day agreed. And that is still a controversial idea. But taking that Christic paradigm seriously and writing it large across the natural world, we can see that the final chapter of history will be the salvation of everything, of matter, of all bodily life, of all creatures, and of the whole cosmos into the embrace of God. Far from being rejected, the evolving world will be transfigured by the life-giving action of the creator spirit. Now, as with the resurrection of Jesus and all the human dead, cosmic redemption is neither imaginable nor, of course, empirically verifiable. But it stems from the logic of faith in God who creates and indwells the world and personally became part of it when the word became flesh in incarnation, died into its depths and rises with it into new life, the same God who loves the whole evolving shebang. In the light of the risen Christ, then, hope of salvation for sinful, mortal human beings expands to become a cosmic hope, a shared hope. So let us move, finally, into the question of ethics and spirituality. It becomes clear from all directions that in our day, a moral universe limited to human persons is no longer adequate. Ethical reflection needs to widen its attention beyond humanity alone and recenter vigorous moral consideration in the whole community of life. In 1990, Pope John Paul II wrote a, a document on the World Day of Peace, January 1st, on this question. It's the first time a pope wrote on the ecological issue at, in any length. That's 20 years ago. Right? And he concluded that letter, speaking about the things I've been saying here in this lecture, um, what Christians believe and how it should lead us to an ethical care for the earth. But he ended the letter by enunciating a stunning principle. And I quote here, Respect for life and the dignity of the human person and I'm stopping the quote right there, because to Catholic ears, that sentence usually is going to go to abortion. Okay? Well, let me read you what he said. Respect for life and the dignity of the human person must extend also to the rest of creation, end quote. Must extend also to the rest of creation. We haven't listened to that teaching. Imagine if all of the energy put into the abortion question were put into ecological issues, just if we had extended, I'm just saying. But this is the teaching, right? In other words, we owe love and justice not only to humankind, but to other kind. So converting minds and hearts to the earth, we need to develop an earth ethic. And I suggest that this involves at least three patterns of behavior. First of all, there is a pattern that we can call contemplation. Here we gaze on the earth with eyes of love rather than with an utilitarian, arrogant gaze. We will not save what we do not love. And so contemplation gazes on the earth with eyes of love and awakens this love within us. I love the line that the scientist Louis Agassiz once said. He said, I spent the summer traveling I got halfway across my backyard. That's what you mean, to look, to see, to contemplate. The wonders of our planet are a source of revelation. And anyone who has ever glimpsed the beauty of God through an experience of delight of the beauty of the natural world, and you're surrounded with it in this wonderful part of the country, knows this. So the contemplative response engages the natural world with religious imagination and heart and allows it to lift our own minds and hearts to God and enfold it into our religious love, out of which will flow an ethic of care. But there is a second response, and this is the ascetic one. Here we restrain our rampant consumerism and self-indulgence in order to protect Earth and its other creatures. It's not a world denying asceticism. It's a sensuous, life-affirming asceticism. But it leads us to live more simply, to observe the Sabbath, for example, as a genuine day of rest, to fast not only from food but from shopping, to endure the inconvenience of running an ecologically sensitive household or business, to conduct business with an eye to the green bottom line as well as the red or the black We do these things not to make ourselves suffer, but to alert ourselves to how enslaved we have become by the marketplace and to act to offset its effect on our planet. And finally, there's a third approach, and this is the approach of prophetic action. Here we take critical action on behalf of the survival of the planet, whether politically, economically, culturally, socially, in whatever forum happens to be ours. In the tradition of biblical prophecy and the spirit of Jesus, we counter the destruction that the earth is undergoing by acting for its healing and care and protection, even if this goes counter to powerful political and economic interests, and it does. The moral goal, then, becomes ensuring vibrant life in community for all on this planet. I conclude with a quote from John's Gospel and one more parable. The quote from John's Gospel is a famous one. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that those who believe should not perish. And again, reading the Greek of that text, we would see that God so loved the Cosmos. In Greek, the word world is cosmos. So Jesus is a gift given because of God's love for this world, which God created and wants to see flourish. And I end with this parable. It's a well-known parable by Teilhard de Chardin. As he tells it, the human race is on a ship moving through an uncharted sea. For millennia, people lived in the hold of the ship, unaware of the larger evolutionary processes moving the boat, but in our day, passengers have come above board. On the deck, they see a tiller, navigational instruments, and charts. We have crossed a threshold. To an important degree, human beings are now able to speculate on the direction of the evolutionary process and even to drive the ship consciously toward its goal. Says Teod. will they act responsibly and steer in a goodly direction, or will they crash the ship onto the rocks? That's the end of his parable. I suggest to you that Christian faith, not only in general in a creator God, but in Jesus Christ, has a great deal to contribute to steering in a goodly direction if we allow our belief in Christ, too, to come up onto the deck. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. There's a considerable effort underway on the part of folks who, I'm not sure they have a common religious foundation, but they certainly have a common economic interest on the far right denying that there is in fact any global change going on and it's certainly denying that it's human, has any heart, human origins. How would you characterize that response?
1: How would I characterize it or how would I deal with it? I would characterize it basically as ostrich behavior putting your head in the sand, and not wanting to see what's happening there. It's frightening. It's scary. It's challenging. It's causing us to change our lifestyles. And we are the comfortable ones in the earth, and this is not easy to do. So rather than my own sense, and I have have encountered this elsewhere, my own sense, rather than just having arguments over it, you know, is, is to say, put your energy toward doing something with those who, in fact, see that change is needed of our style of life, of our economy, of the way that we produce and consume, um, the way we are reproducing our own numbers. That's one of the big issues. And again, that gets dicey among religious people. But in 1950, if I may just say this, there were 2 billion people on the face of the earth from the beginning of the human race till 1950. And then in the year 2000, there were 6 billion. And now 10 years later, we're seven 7 billion. And we're going, going, going. And the more people are born, the more habitat is being taken from other creatures. We need water. We need land. We need food. Um, And how far can we go before we're the only species left on the earth? But what happened to the whole beautiful creation of everything else? You know, So we need to control our numbers. We need to control our consumption. We need to change our economic capitalism. I gave a lecture at Fordham uh, in a big conference with the Business School of Fordham and the Environmental Protection Agency last month in which I said we have, we're worshiping the god of the market, unfettered capitalism. is is an idolatrous behavior, and even religious people do, and even the institutional religions do. We all want the market to make profit. Aren't we all happy when it goes up and not down a 1,000 points? So the the thing is we're caught in this system, and I think it takes just clear-eyed sense of quiet sitting, saying, watching what's happening, thinking Along the lines, not every angle of every person who you know cries out about ecology and its damage is, has to be listened to, but the overall impact of our species on the earth at this point, I think, is undeniable. And if you are denying it, that's why I say I see it as ostrich behavior. It's like you don't want to see it because it's going to require too much challenge to change.